Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, players, and welcome to another cracking episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Pull up a stool at the table and have a peek at these cards. Now, in today's episodes, it's today's episode, there's only one of them today, we're going to take a bit of a retrospective on two enormous influences on our modern lives. Matt is going to look into how the NBN has changed Australia for the better. And further along in the bulletin, he'll have a look at how Facebook has evolved the way we socialise in the third decade of the 21st century. And Matt is going to reveal how the rechargeable battery is about to get a very timely facelift. That's all ahead of us, and a little more to, and a little more than a hollow shell of a plan if we don't unlock the cage and let this guy out for a bit. Welcome to the microphone, Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? Yes, out of the cage. Thank goodness. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> He's free. <laughs> Woo! Just, just so for the hour. Keep the padlock away and we'll just see what we can do. So this week, I want to talk a little bit about, I know I try and find something that's happening in the week in technology, but I read a newspaper article in a publication in a major city in Australia that uh, talked about me, which I thought was very nice. Only one thing worse than people talking about you is people not talking about you. You're known in other cities. Other cities, that's right. But it was making accusations about me, and I don't know whether they were complimentary or derogatory, because it was labelling me as a greenie. Now, greenie has a term, or is a term that I think many years ago you'd call people greenies, and you'd imagine people chaining themselves, getting that padlock back out. about the tree hugging. Yeah, that's right. Chaining themselves to the tree and stopping all progress. And I don't know that I've ever been accused of stopping progress. I talk about technology a lot, which is obviously along the lines of progress. I would have said as a mayor, you're fairly progressive. (laughs) But I think just the fact that we often do talk about technology progressing along wind or solar or different ways of generating power or different power-saving techniques, Mm. apparently that in the modern term is what makes someone a greenie. Mm. So I've never really thought of myself as a greenie per se, but if it involves using renewable power, it involves having solar panels on the roof of your house or driving EVs, then I guess apparently I'm a greenie now. So the definition must have changed over the years. (laughs) But it is interesting that... The And again, obviously, in any sort of public debate, people like to throw names around, which seems a bit silly. I always laugh when someone starts calling you names. You've won the argument. They've run out of mm. good arguments, so That's now it right. just gets down to name calling. But in terms of that, I, I think now I'm taking Greeny as a compliment. Maybe I wouldn't have so many many years ago, but maybe I will take it as a compliment now. But there, yeah, there's there's a lot more substance to it now than what there used to be. Yeah, and so there was there was lovely intentions in the past. Well, now we've, we talk about progression and um and and doing things in a better way. We've got ways of doing things better. We you might even say that the Greenies in inverted commas from decades ago could see some sort of vision in the future where we needed to be a bit kinder to the planet and the rest of us, including me, are just waking up to the fact that we should be making some changes now. So it's, mm. it's interesting, but it doesn't help the ongoing debate about renewables, about EVs, about the planet, when it just gets down to straight name-calling. Yeah, yeah. So keep the uh, debate about what it should be, yeah? Mm, that'd be yeah. nice in all debates, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> all right, enough of this lollygagging. It's time for our first story. In an age where digital security battles to stay a step ahead of the fraudsters, document verification for financial institutions is a cumbersome burden that painfully draws out an application process. AI has come to the rescue and is set to bring the drudgery of delay for your next mortgage application down to mere seconds. 
Matt, it's not widespread through all the big banks yet, but a couple of key institutions overseas are dipping their toes in at least. You've got some local ones, some overseas ones. And the thing I like about this in particular is it's a Sydney-based technology firm that's providing the back-end intelligence for all this to happen. You've got banks like ANZ, Macquarie Bank, even Perpetual Corporate, Corporate Trust who are using this same sort of technology. And it's not at the point where the AI is assessing the entire loan application. There's some of that that happens. But the first step is going through and just verifying that everything's been filled in correctly, all the documents are there, everything that needs to be completed has been completed. And they're talking about taking that down from an average of 12 minutes to maybe in the vicinity of 48 seconds. And I'm even confused about that. 48 seconds, that seems like mm. a long time. It seems for, like a very round number as well. <laughs> it does seem like a very round number. <laughs> but it seems like a long time for AI to go and assess that. I almost thought that as you were filling in the application, it would almost be assessing it as you go. Mm. Maybe they're doing some extra checks in it for 48 seconds and maybe it'll get down to 4.8 seconds before too much longer. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, this is where we're headed. And if we go back to the the bad old days, I'm sure the first loan application you put in for a housing loan, and the same with me, it was a paper form that you would mm. fill in all the details and you'd talk to a person, you'd talk to the bank manager if you're really lucky or someone in the days. bank, <laughs> and you'd hand it in and they'd go away and a week later, maybe weeks later, they'd give you a phone call and you have to go back in, get dressed in the suit again and go back yeah. in to meet with the bank manager and he'd tell you you were successful or how much you could borrow, whatever it might have been. Obviously, that's gone online now. That's nicer. But I do remember back in those old days still where I had a bit of a discussion with a bank manager at one stage where they didn't want to approve a loan to the level that I wanted it approved. And I, I talked to him about a whole range of different things and reasons why. And he said, well, well, we've put it into our spreadsheet and our spreadsheet comes out with this. And I went, but how do you take into effect all these ideas and visions I've got for what we want to do? And it was a business loan I was trying to get you know, with all these things I want to do with the business. And I said, well, we're just punching the numbers and that's what the number comes out with. So I was a bit oh, frustrated that there was no human element in that, but I think we're getting further and further away from that human mm. element. And it's getting to that point where all this back-end processing, checking all the documentation, but then actually looking at it at some point in time and saying, okay, now we approve this loan with all the information we've been given, or we don't approve the loan. And then what do you do? It's the AI overlords that you keep talking about that we've got to be yeah, nice to. So that can right. you please revise that loan application, have another look at it for me and just see if you can approve it? So this is where we're going with a whole range of things though. The first thing is that the CEO of Lakeba, L-A-K-E-B-A is a company doing the back end, said that in the first instance, just getting the documentation and getting that right, at the moment they're sitting on 97% accuracy in verifying those documents, which it seems a bit low for me. I would have thought mm. a 3% miss rate was a bit higher than you would like. Yeah. Now, presumably when you've got your documents you're uploading and proving all the information you're saying, your payslip, whatever it might be, there might be some pretty rough images they might be trying to upload. So maybe that's where some of those errors are occurring. But again, it just comes down to you getting all that information, assessing it all, and it's removing the human element from that drudgery. And then maybe humans can come in at the end and still assess the loan based on all the information. Yeah, because I was going to say, if you're one of the 3%, you're one of three in 100 that uh, get knocked back for because it hasn't done the scan properly. Or maybe 3 in 100 that gets approved without all the correct information. I, I think oh, that, yeah. I think Sorry, yeah, my that. apologies. No, yeah. no, I think, they're, I think you're right. I yeah, think they, okay. they, they would yeah, err yeah. on that side. Yeah so, um, yeah, so if you've got that sort of inaccuracy, that becomes really frustrating. You'd need some sort of double check. Yeah, that's right. Now, ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, has talked about AI regulation a bit because they want to make sure that if you start getting to the point where it's just assessing things in the back end, 
they want to make sure that you're not getting some sort of bias that's built into the algorithms. Mm. And we've seen that bias before because as programmers are writing the algorithms, sometimes they've got a natural bias. And that yeah. natural bias then comes through in the algorithms that are written. So they're keeping an eye on it because financial services are one of the leading sectors that are actually using AI tools, a whole range of logical reasons for that. And it's dealing with numbers, so it's probably a bit easier for AI to make assessments on that. So I can't see for some time an AI tool doing a driver test for a teenager, for example, to get their driver's license. There's so much involved in that. But when it's just crunching numbers and then making mm. an assessment on that, AI is probably a bit better at doing that type of thing. But it is it is getting to that point where it's a bit scary that we just fill stuff in and we hope someone's written an algorithm that's okay with the information we're giving it. Fingers crossed, huh? It's not been completely smooth sailing, but the NBN has been a real shot in the arm for business here in Australia since its rollout began way back in 2011, um, yeah, 2011 it was. At the time, the naysayers were jumping up and down and bashing fists on desks over exorbitant costs. But now, a comprehensive study has brought forward evidence to confirm the good news, along with some very positive predictions for the future, Matt. Well, there's a couple of things in this. The first thing is it's a report that's been written by Accenture, that's commissioned by the NBN. I do worry when a company commissions someone to do a report about themselves. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> and then... This comes with a caveat. That's, well, it says what a wonderful organisation this is because you're being paid by that organisation. Now, I hope that anyone doing that, obviously their credibility is on the line, so they do it as fairly and evenly as possible, but, but it might just be slightly biased. Okay. Because a couple of bits of data that came out of this that... I would like to see more information. And to be fair, I haven't gone and read the full report. I've read a summary of the report. But one of the things it said in the report was that for every extra one megabit per second in speed that we've had in broadband speeds over a 10-year time frame, 2012 to 2022, we've added 0.04% of GDP. Right. Now, what I worry in that is causation. Sure, GDP might have gone up over the years, sure. Broadband speed's gone up, but is there a direct link yeah. between that broadband speed Correlation versus causation, folks. Exactly right. So yeah. I don't have enough information to say that. And again, uh, my apologies if the report shows in absolute obvious detail that this is the link between those two. If nothing else, this is an exercise in being a discerning reader. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah? That's right. Exactly right. Now, they do say that the MBN will boost the economy by another $400 billion by 2030. I hope it's based on more than just every extra megabit of, mm. per second of speed for a 0.04% increase. But there are some things there that make a lot of sense to me. Rural areas, for example, they are gaining the benefit of broadband 16 times more than urban centres. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Broadband speeds in rural areas were terrible before yeah. the NBN came along. Yeah. So there was more opportunity for increases there in rural areas. And of course, remote work. You've got people who wanted to live in rural areas, but their job was in the, the big smoke. But well, That's an now, enormous consideration. That's yeah? right. So that definitely is a link between getting people from metro areas to regional centres and then allowing them to sit at home and work. Because mm. if you're going to work from home in Sydney and have an hour commute the occasional time you're going to work, you might as well work five hours away, ten hours away. Because if it's just exactly. remote, you've got a computer, you've got a phone sitting on the desk in front of you. Well, that's all you need, isn't it? So mm. for a lot of those jobs, that absolutely makes a business, uh, make, make sense. The other part is that there's been 
savings. So MBN users have saved around $2,580 per year, and that's linked to cutting travel costs and associated costs with travel. And that can even be things like online shopping, because in the past, you might have spent some time traveling from store to store to look at various products. Now you can go online, find the product you want, and you can just make the one trip directly to where you want, Mm. where you want to go. I'm a big fan of shopping locally still, buying my products physically rather than doing online shopping. I want to support the local economy. But what I will do is I'll check which of the stores locally might have what I want or do they have it in stock. And I still sometimes make an old-fashioned phone call and say, it says you've got it in stock here. Can you just check (laughs) the shelves? Because sometimes those stock levels... Because you're not trusting it. Well, not always perfect. Fair enough too. Yeah, this is another interesting part. Three quarters of MBN customers said that they've got improved life satisfaction due to more reliable broadband. Are we at that point that we need reliable broadband to be satisfied with our lives? Apparently, yes, is the answer. That's interesting. (laughs) It is interesting. Because that really means that you've got to really think about all the facets of your life that was before we had the MBN. That's pre-2011. Yep. (laughs) And think about what we do with the MBN. I suppose that's more the part of it. It's... It's like a road. Yeah. The road means nothing unless you've got a car, unless you've got somewhere to go, unless exactly. you, you've got a use for that road. The MBM means nothing unless you've got something you can do. So maybe streaming services, maybe people say it's much better now hmm. rather than turn on the TV and let some executive in an ivory tower choose what I watch at 7 p.m. at night. I choose what I want. That might be more satisfying in their life environment. So there might be things like that. Hmm. The other bit of criticism on the flip side is there's some, been some recent price changes and there's been some people dropping the service, about 15,000 people recently have dropped the service. And some of those people have dropped the service for pricing reasons. Some of them have dropped those services because mobile broadband is so good now and so cost Ah. effective and so fast. The internet you've got on your phone, for some people they've got plans now, they might have paid an extra $10 per month and gotten some ridiculous amount of data and they just use their phone for the, why do I need the MBM? Why do I need to pay that monthly fee for the MBM that I can only use when I'm home, mm. whereas I can have it on my phone or even having a dongle of some description that they travel around with. So some people are, are finding other options are more effective for them, more cost effective as well. And there's no doubt about it that Starlink has been a bit of competition in there as well. Yeah, Starlink sure. is, is mm. typically been a replacement for satellite MBM. And I go way back, I think it was about 2008 I first sat in the office of the communications minister at the time, uh, said, Stephen, you need to be focused on the fibre side of it and the fixed wireless, great, but the satellite, give up. Don't even call that NBN because the satellite has such latency. All mm. the things we're promised by the NBN aren't going to be delivered. And finally, now it's taken a long time after that conversation, but finally now Starlink is delivering some of those advantages to people where they used to get remote or the satellite before. So some people are dropping off for a range of those different reasons, but I still think it's fantastic we've got it and we just need to keep increasing those speeds and keeping a lid on the prices. For sure. This next story is for the folks who have just about everything. Smart rings. Now, if a smartwatch is too bulky for you or it doesn't match your outfit, you can now accessorize properly and keep track of your your health metrics 24-7 with finger jewelry. 
and Samsung will not let you down with their new Galaxy Ring. Matt, the Green Lantern, wishes he had one of these, I'm sure. It reminds me of an episode of the show, speaking of streaming, of the show called Billions, which I found quite an interesting show. And at one stage in the show, and it's heavily focused on a team of people working in the stock market and some of the interesting things they go through to, to win the deal. Mm. But the boss came out and gave them all a ring. And, of course, it was a smart ring. Mm. And then they sat back and tracked all the stockbrokers and what they were doing. <laughs> they went, oh, well, isn't this nice? We've got a, a ring from our, our boss. But, of course, he was using that to track exactly what was happening with every moment of their life. And then they could contact them. And in the end, one of the guys had a heart attack, but he was saved because he had a ring. And that's what it was revealed that they were actually tracking everything that was happening with their rings. <laughs> but Samsung is definitely going into this area now. They've made the announcement about the Galaxy Ring. We don't have the price, the release date, or the specific functionalities, but we do know from other companies like Oura and Eevee, O-U-R-A and E-V-I-E, the two different brands that have got smart rings now, and pretty much most of the things you can do with a smartwatch, you can do with a smart ring. You can't tell the time, okay. but, but the, in terms of the health facets, and we do often talk about this. Health wearables, that is the future. Material science and health wearables, that's where you want to go if you want to be in the IT world I in the future. I just can't believe on that, that knuckle of your, your finger there that you can get all those health metrics well, accurately. And the, the thing that gets me is the battery. So I can understand yeah. the sensors being incredibly small. And then you think, well, that's fine. You've got small sensors and it's only a low power transmission it puts out to connect to your smartphone. So you, you're not having to transmit the data very far. But you need a battery. So to it doesn't run need a double that. A battery, does it? Or <laughs> no, you'd, you'd have to run some leads up your arm and, and have some double A's but, there. Yeah, right. Now, the battery just, life of them isn't fantastic. It's worse than a smartwatch. And again, well, that makes sense because it's pretty small. Now, when I say pretty small, they are thicker than a normal clearly ring. you can't plug it in. It'd have to be wireless charging. Correct. There's a, a thing that you just sit it on, a bit like a smartwatch. There's yeah, no gotcha. charges you plug yeah, into yeah, a smartwatch. Yeah. So it's the same type of thing. But you're getting things like heart rate, you're getting things like activity. So mm. you, you're actually able to sense a fair bit about your body. Now, where Samsung is going with this, they've got this whole concept around my vitality score. And based on that, you've got four main areas, activity, nutrition, sleep, and stress management. So they're using your watch, your phone, and when the ring comes out, your ring to try and help all this and give you this score, this My Vitality score, a booster card. You can check on your vitality through the day, see how you're going. In the old days, we used to listen to our body a little bit and go, oh, I'm not feeling that great. Mm. Or I'm feeling really good. I'll, I'll go for that 10K jog that I haven't been going for because I'm feeling great today. But now, just to see how you're feeling, you pull out your phone and go, Oh, I'm actually feeling pretty good today. I didn't realise that. <laughs> yeah, just double check. Oh, no, right. I'm not feeling sick. No, um, that's right. <laughs> so how long before when you ring into work and say, oh, oh I can't come in today, boss. I I'm losing my voice. Uh, just send in your vitality score, please, and we'll just check on your metrics and see how you're going there. <laughs> but I, I think what, the thing that's good about this is that we've got more competition. And mm. there have been some smaller players in the market with the two that I mentioned previously, but when you get the big boys coming in, when you get a company like Samsung coming into the market, that will certainly progress innovation. And if they see something else they like in another product, they'll typically buy the patent for that. Or if you're Apple, you might steal it in terms of the, the, what's the, the mm. problems they had there. But typically, they would buy some of that technology to add to their ring. So you'll just see a lot of advancement because maybe they got to the point where they said, our watches. Well, we've gone as far as we can with our watches for the time being. The next developments are very small. What else can we go and attack? And so let's go and focus on the rings. Yeah, well, I, I think sometimes about um, how these things are recording movement and whatnot. I, I do remember 
I've hit my step goal once sitting in an audience clapping. Um, and I've also... It was vigorous clapping, though. <laughs> it was a really good show. Um, and um, hit my step goal once while I was driving a long distance in a car. Right. Just moving around. Now, that's just from a watch. Yeah. But I'm thinking about all the times my fingers open and close um, for one reason or another. And we did talk about it previously. It's not perfect, but it's more a comparison. So yeah, you might okay. use a smart ring to compare what you're doing and your vitality score might be directly linked to you. So I might say, oh, my score's 78, and you go, well, my score's 79, but it may not be directly comparable because of the different makeup of our bodies. But it might be my vitality score is relevant to me day-to-day type of thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, again, I don't want to see us replace doctors with these various devices we're wearing, but it might just keep us more focused, more conscious of our health and just be aware of our health a bit more that you then might go and visit a doctor, especially yeah. males, special middle-aged males <laughs> out there who don't visit doctors. What are you saying to me here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting you in the young category. Well, so, so thank, a few you. Years oh, thank you. I, I always joke about in the Monty Python and Holy Grail where you've got the Black Knight fight and you know he gets his arm cut off, he's just a flesh wound. Yeah. I think of middle-aged males as that you'd, yeah. you'd lose an arm and you go, oh, I don't need to see a doctor, it's just a flesh wound. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes the attitude middle-aged males have. So maybe if we look at this, we might say, mm, maybe I should go and see a doctor. Well, I also feel like anything that helps me hit my step goal on a day is also a really good thing too. So well, I get my streak up. Well, and, and that's a thing as well that even if sometimes it's not perfect when you're sitting in an audience or in a car, if you do say, oh, I better hit my step goal, I'll just go for a walk. Yeah. Or I'll, I'll walk up the stairs rather than take the travel ladder or that type of thing. You might just be consciously a bit more move, yeah. have a bit more movement. So that's not a bad thing. In modern warfare, where success on the battlefield hinges so greatly upon the control of communications, Ukraine is wrestling for the upper hand by messing with Russia's GPS. Matt, I'm yet to invade any country on any meaningful scale, but I'm prepared to wager that if you don't have access to a reliable uh, global positioning system, then your tanks and drones and rockets are likely to become very expensive ornaments. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Now, I actually, when I saw this story and what they're doing, I thought of Die Hard 2. So I don't <laughs> know if you remember Die Hard 2, but that's it's the a classic. One. It wasn't the Christmas movie. No, are they all Christmas movies? No, the first one was a Christmas movie. Right. So Die Hard 2 <laughs> might have been Die Harder, might have been the other term. Yeah, okay, right, okay. But it was. It still might have been Christmas time. It was the one under the, with the bank vault, wasn't it? Uh, the, getting all the gold bullion out. Was that right? No, Die Hard 2 was the one where they were coming in in the snow Oh, in the storm. airplane. The airplane. Was that still around Christmas? Because he was waiting for his wife oh, to come could home. could have been, yes. Actually, yeah. another Christmas movie. But in the beginning of that, and I remember watching this, this is way back in 1990, and I thought, yeah, what a joke this is, because Colonel Stewart, the bad guy, of course, he said, activate the ILS landing system. I hate the fact that he said ILS landing system. Yeah. Because the LS stands like landing the system, but I'll get past that. machine. That's right, exactly. Recalibrate sea level minus 200 feet. And then, of course, the controller the says, oh, no, they've reset ground level, minus 200 feet. Now, there's a whole bunch of technical problems I have with that because the ILS is more or less a glide path to come in. So you'd probably have to go and bury something 200 feet underground to make that happen. But I thought about that and I went, forget about all the technical issues I've got with that. Surely you can't just flick a switch and say, that's it, recalibrate 
for example, ILS or recalibrate the altimeters on the plane because obviously air pressure would give you the the height above. Well, the that makes as me well. feel a whole lot better because after seeing that scene, I became very traumatized by the <laughs> fact that it's just numbers in a computer. That it's just someone flicking a switch to go minus two hundred feet and that's change, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a whole bunch of other issues around that, but it's a movie, and I thought at the time, sure, I've got some technical deficiencies in that, but get over it, Matthew. It's okay. Just watch the movie. I wish we'd had this conversation earlier, <laughs> like what, thirty years ago. It's been like thirty years of, of minor trauma. Thinking someone could just reset, recalibrate the uh, ILS landing system, um, and uh, yeah. and you're in trouble. Well, I'm going to make you more nervous again because what I thought was fictional movie plot and what a joke that was, and how silly and the script rose to get it right. Now we're shot. Now we go to Ukraine and the war with Russia and Ukraine. And what they've done effectively is they've implemented a system that has done something very similar. They've basically said, GPS, you no longer can give accurate readings about where you are. Now, let's go back a little bit. GPS, and and sorry, I shouldn't say GPS. It really should be GNSS because you've got global navigation satellite systems. So that includes Russia's got a, a GLONASS system. Europe's got Galileo. The original is the American GPS system, which is right. what we normally refer to GPS. So, okay. so that's okay. But GNSS is the technical name now. And, and just to go back on a theme, we can't say GPS systems either, can we? Because we can't. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, yes. Right. Yeah. So GPS. So we've got back in 1993, GPS became operational. 24 satellites in orbit at 20,200 kilometers. Mm. So. You've got at 20,200, you've got two rotations of the Earth per day. Mm. The idea of GPS is that your little device sitting on the ground gets four satellites that it can see. I thought it was only three for triangulation. Well, is there one for altitude as well? Yeah, maybe? so yeah, right. to get accurate, you can you can do it with less than That's four. That's a double checker. But with four, you're getting accurate readings of position and altitude. Right. So that's what your device in your phone, in your car, whatever, is trying to look for. Now, (laughs) it relies on incredibly accurate timekeeping. We talked last week about the father time, the the death of David L. Mills and the father time. And that's exactly what these are working on. You've got 16 monitor stations around the world on the ground. And you've got this, they, they know those positions. And you've got this accurate timekeeping on each of those satellites is an atomic clock. On the monitor stations on the ground, you've got atomic clocks, and they're matching the time, how long it takes to get from one to the other. And by doing that, you can work out the position. Now, we're, we're talking about accurate timekeeping here, obviously, because these signals are travelling at speed of light, close mm. enough, electromagnetic waves. And to give you an idea, just to travel from the satellite to the ground is about 67.38 milliseconds. And if you were doing the time accurate to one nanosecond, it's travelled 29.98 centimetres in that one nanosecond. So you're talking about getting accuracy to tens of nanoseconds. Mm. Most people talk about GPS being accurate to within about, say, five metres. So it's not too bad in its timekeeping. What your little device on the ground is relying on, though, is information coming from the satellite that says, I'm here, here is my exact time when I'm sending the signal and some other information about which satellite it is, etc., and, and other satellites around. Your device on the ground picks it up and says, oh, my time is now this time and I've got a signal from there, there, there and there. That means I do the calculation and I come up with my position being right here. If you want to trick it, you can send a stronger signal than the satellites with spoofed data. 
So here <laughs> I am sitting in a location and I want people to not know the location. Then I just send out the same information that would come from the satellites. But if it's stronger, then my receiver on the ground is getting multiple signals because there's multiple satellites to conceive. But, oh, this is All a stronger right. one. I'll take the signals from this particular device, which can be something on the ground giving you data that's incorrect. Yeah, wow. Now, <laughs> Russia should not be a stranger to this because it's well known in Russia that if you punch in, as a tourist, for example, I want to go and see the Kremlin, you punch into a satellite navigation system, you'll end up at the airport. They don't allow the Kremlin to be found via normal yeah, right. GPS or GNSS. You have to ask a local. Yeah, to ask a local, where's the Kremlin? It's telling me it's this direction. No, no, no. You're looking at your sat nav. No, it's over in this direction over here. Even around the Black Sea, if you're on a ship out in the Black Sea, it might look like you're inland and you're looking around. You've got ocean everywhere and you're going, <laughs> how can I be five kilometres inland? So Russia does this around important assets in Russia itself. So they would be well and truly aware that you could spoof and this is you know, the sort of thing that might happen there. But at the moment what's happening is Russia sending in drones, they're sending in their various payloads to do damage to Ukraine, which is not very nice by the way. And the Ukraine is spoofing signals so that it might go somewhere else. Now, the problem you've got is you avoid this target being hit, but then you might land yeah. on Mrs. Brown's place. Uh. So you've then got to be pretty clever about saying, let's make sure that the target that's going to be hit is a target that's an open field or somewhere okay. that's not going to be important. Or the Kremlin. Or the Kremlin. <laughs> if you can send it back to the Kremlin, even better. That's exactly <laughs> right. So be scared again when you think about this because now planes certainly do use GPS or GNSS for their navigation. So they're using other techniques now. And you've got organisations like the Civil Aviation Authority who are starting to look at this and saying, hmm, could just some amateur sitting at home start to create the same signals that come out of a GPS right. and start spoofing signals. And you think, well, this might all be... We have to pull this story out. <laughs> you're getting too scared. <laughs> well, you might think it's all super secret because it was obviously the US Department of Defence that first designed the whole GPS mm. concept. But amateurs, or not amateurs, organisations that are out there have to know how to interpret these signals because mm. they're building... For example, TomTom. TomTom was one of the first satellite navigation devices. So they had to be able to say to the US Department of Defence, can you tell me what these signals mean so we can have our system work with that? So then lots of people out there know what these signals look like so they could spoof those same signals. So all pretty scary. The other thing I want to mention, which I think is absolutely fascinating, when Einstein went through and designed some of his general theory or special and general relativity theories, he said that an atomic clock in orbit would run 38 microseconds faster per day to uh, basically it's traveling not anywhere near the speed of light, but it's mm. getting closer. And you might remember when they first... Faster or slower? Hang on. It's, if it's moving... It's moving faster, and this is relative to someone on Earth. Yeah, so, so they'd be in the rest frame, so it wouldn't be slower. Anyway, look, sorry, I'm, I'm quibbling now. Um, and I'm happy to take a correction there. I was thinking it would be faster, but you might be right. Remember when they got so a 747? In a moving, yeah, in a moving uh, craft, someone in a moving frame of reference yep. will experience time slower than someone in a resting frame of reference. So that would mean that me on Earth would see it faster. Does that sound right? No, you would see it Go operating slower. Right. Yeah. Because remember one of the things they did was when they got a 747. Yeah, this is in 1976. It's the that's famous right. half-held Keating experiment. That's right. So they actually put an atomic clock, put it up there for a while and brought it back down and went, oh, look at that. It did actually change. So yeah. in the satellite 
systems, they've got all of these different satellite navigation systems. Because time is so important, they not only have to do all the maths, have atomic clocks on the devices, they also have to take into account Einstein's concept, which was proven to be correct, obviously, and make time adjustments for that as well. So, mm. And luckily, it's not me doing it because I'd have it the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd be completely out if it was me doing it. So it's, it's actually an interesting concept about modern warfare that you're starting to use electronics in modern warfare rather than just using good old-fashioned bombs and, mm. and you know, obviously uh, artillery. But this is, I suppose, where we're going, cyber attacks, a whole range of different things I think will be the modern warfare. But it's a bit scary if they can just change where you think you are compared to where you are. Mm. Well, I'd forgotten about that scene in uh, Die Hard 2 and now um, I've remembered it and you've pointed out that it is a real problem for us. Um, thanks very much. Well, you I'm going to make an apology, a public apology to Stephen E. D'Souza and Doug Richardson, scriptwriters for Die Hard 2. And at uh-huh. the time I went, oh, that's a silly plot. But now I'm actually seeing them as visionaries. They were telling the future <laughs> of what was going to happen in modern warfare. There you go. Now, I'm going to bet that the majority of our listeners are pretty good at reading traffic lights. Well, an obscure little invention has come across our consciousness here at Tech Talk. It's a smart hat, and it can detect changes in traffic lights. Now, the application of this tech might not be immediately obvious, but for the visually impaired, this might be a bit of a game changer, actually. Matt, what are the ins and outs of this newfangled gadgetry? A smart hat. A smart hat. I want to talk a little bit about the application here, but I want to talk more about the broader application. The specific application we've got here is that you put on your smart hat. It's got conductive fibers in there. It plugs into a little device that can transmit information to your smartphone that can then give you information about what might be happening with traffic lights. So for visually impaired people, or maybe for my teenage children who are easily distracted, <laughs> then... That light's gone red. <laughs> that's, that's right, stop now. <laughs> then I think that's a, a great little concept, but fairly limited in its application, I would have thought. But what's more interesting for me is you've now got fibres that can be woven into your clothing, your hat, anything you wear, smart jackets, all the rest of it, that can conduct electricity and still be part of the overall clothing piece. Throw it in the washing machine, do whatever you like with it. You might have something you plug in and then take that, unplug that and throw it in. And I'm thinking of my heated socks here. That was one of the first things I thought of when I thought about this. My heated socks, not applicable at the moment in summer, but in winter, I definitely use my heated socks when I go and ride my bike. And all they've got is some wires that run down and a resistor around the toes, and it just generates some heat there. But it's certainly, you can feel the wires separate to the actual fabric of the sock. Now, imagine if you has had... That, has that feeling increased since you started washing it? Was it negligible? You couldn't sense it before, but after a while, they just deteriorate differently? No, I don't think it's changed into washing, and you wash them a bit gently. You don't just throw them in the washing machine, <laughs> yeah, okay. which is a bit of a shame. But I think it's really just about... When, when you wash them, it, it, again, I suppose they were always, I could always feel those wires there. Mm. Maybe as the sock wears out, as I wear them more and more, it might get thinner material and the, mm. the metal stays the same. But with conductive fibres like this, you can actually build whatever you want into the sock. So it might be sensing things, but surely if you've got conductivity, you could generate heat as well if you wanted to out of it. So what are the applications for this? I don't know. I don't know all the applications. I did think of sport where you'll sometimes see a sporting team. And if you look in the small of their back, I don't know if that's a technical term. Mum used to talk about the small of their back. So in between your shoulder blades. I know what you're talking about. So you'll often see a little device there 
that might be a tracking device so they can track the athletes, how fast they've run, how far they've run, all that type of information. But it sticks out a little bit there and you hope that they don't get tackled and thrown on their back and that might do something to one of their vertebrae, but I'm sure they've thought about all that. But imagine having their clothing where they just had conductive fibres built in. And there's a a case going on at the moment where there was a a rugby league player who died in training. They're talking about over-exertion heat stress that he suffered from now imagine again wearing clothing that sensed some of these things that sensed your body temperature that looked at some of the metrics of your body again wearables but gave it to you in a a much more detailed information because you've got this great big surface area of your clothing so detecting traffic lights yeah sure not a big market for that but weaving conductive fibres into clothing, a whole range of different clothing types, this is going to happen. This is, will be happening in a whole range of different ways. Look forward to that, folks. We've now entered the era where you literally cannot trust your own eyes and ears. AI and the concept of the deep fake are here and lurking around every corner, ready to separate you from anything that you regard as being valuable. Now, one such deep fake cost a very unlucky finance worker in Hong Kong $38.8 million of his company's bank balance. Matt, that constitutes one hell of a please explain. Has he still got a job? That's the question I've got. I wonder, and, and I hope he has, because this is so easy to fool people now. If I was on a video conference call with my CEO mm. and my chief financial officer, and they instructed me, to go and make a transfer of whatever the sum might be, $38.8 million in this particular example, Mm. then surely I would go and do that. My CEO and my CFO have just told me to go and do this. I'm going to go and do that. Who am I as an employee below these two to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't think you guys are legit. I mean, you might not have a job then. (laughs) So he did what he was instructed to do transferred the money to the various bank accounts for this deal that was going through that he was well and truly aware of and everything made sense and of course then found out that it wasn't his CEO, it wasn't his CFO on the video call with him. It was a deep fake of both. And again, on a video call, how good is a deep fake when you can fall for that in a conversation you're having in a video call? If it was a pre-recorded video, you'd think, sure, they just had something that they could work and manipulate but when it's having a conversation it's an interaction and still it was good enough to fool someone so you've got to have someone behind the scenes essentially typing answers or saying answers to the questions that are being asked on this video call while the technology is actually making it look like the voice and the vision of someone else what is real matt is that really you sitting across from me right now i just who knows I think of R2-D2 and the little holograph that came yeah. out of Princess Leia. I think about that movie, A Total Recall, uh, where, you know, was it a dream, Was you know, all that sort of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so some of those things that people are dreaming up, scriptwriters, they are telling the future, aren't they? Uh. So it's a pretty scary sort of thing. But again, what do you trust? If, if you have that video call next time, what do you do then? Do you hang up the video call and then make a phone call to one of them? Is someone intercepting the phone calls? I mean, when do you trust the information you're given? It's pretty scary. In the flesh, we're getting away from that. We're getting remote work. We're looking at the convenience of working remotely and not travelling all the time, but 
maybe that's not working out for some of these scams mm. or working in favour of some of these scammers. We've got to start working in very personal sort of information and conversations that only people would know. Yeah, that's right. Only that person that you're speaking to, you've got a secret code word. But of course, they learn the secret code word and then it's all yeah. over. The bigger issue is, well, that's a big issue for that company, $38.8 million worth of issues. But then you start to get a whole range of other things. I know there was one where Twiggy Forest was promoting a cryptocurrency trading platform. Of course, it was a fake version of Twiggy Forest, and it was a fraudulent crypto firm. Now, a bit like when Tom Hanks was advertising dentistry, a bit like Twiggy Forest. Mm. Tom Hanks and Twiggy Forest have probably got enough money, they don't need to take advertising dollars from someone to go and advertise a product on their behalf. So you've really got to just throw a bit of common sense on some of these things when you see them. The 2024 US election, analysts are worried about how much that will be impacted by deep fakes. There's already been a robocall uh. featuring a deep fake of the US President Joe Biden's voice to try and att- to um, influence the Democratic primaries in New Hampshire. So that's already happened. Voice deep fake is one thing, but when we start to get to video deep fake, mm. it's pretty scary. And what they need is lots of data. But when you've got public figures that are being videoed, interviewed exactly. all the time, yep. it's pretty easy to come up with that. So I don't know what advice to give people. Go and hide in a hole and not listen <laughs> to anyone. <laughs> don't transfer $38.8 million without yeah, some yeah. other Never way of ever checking. transfer large months of money. Special year for Mark Zuckerberg. 2024 marks two decades of a platform that reshaped communication. Because Facebook is 20 years old this year, and Matt is going to unpack just how it created an evolution in how people socialise. Matt, the modern history of social networking is, well, in a nutshell, right now you're going to pass it to us. It's scary. (laughs) No, it's quite fascinating, actually, the change that's happened. Go back, 4th of February 2004 was when Facebook officially started, or the Facebook that was known then, of course. And And it started off just within a uni, uh, you know, in the university and just connecting people. That's right, and just trying to work out. friends. Yeah, trying to uh, work out a way to connect those people exactly right. So when you think about how we use it now and think about how quickly it took off, it was obviously the right idea, the right mm. time, the right place, a whole range of other things needed to fall into place. But when they started that, there was something like MySpace was out at the time, but MySpace didn't have the, the tagging, didn't have quite the features that Facebook had. So yeah. it was just getting everything right at the right time. A year after it launched, so again, you're, you're spot on. Something that you're there using at uni just as a, a little tool. Hey, this might be interesting. A year after it launched, it had a million users. Now, I'm pretty sure that wasn't just people at the uni campus. I'm pretty sure that went a bit wider than just those people there. That's an explosion there. That's right. And in terms of getting ahead of MySpace, within four years it was well and truly ahead of MySpace. It made MySpace seem like it was totally irrelevant. And then within eight years, one billion monthly users. So that's not bad growth, is it? Mm. And, And this is the thing. You talk about firms that have got physical presence, physical items, imagine getting a billion customers eight years after you launched a firm, whatever it might be. And they weren't even all friends. <laughs> they weren't all friends. They probably no. called themselves friends, but they weren't <laughs> all quite friends. That's right. So you start to look at it now. Where are we now in relation to exactly what's happening? So you talk about Facebook now, 2.11 billion daily users. So that's quite incredible. But then, of course, Meta, the parent company now, Facebook, has got its fingers in a whole range of different areas. They bought Instagram, dropped a cool billion dollars for Instagram. They bought Oculus, $2 billion for that. They really like the look of WhatsApp. 
19 billion they paid for that. How do you justify spending 19 yeah, billion on something? I'm just going shopping today. I want to buy a little tool called WhatsApp. I'm going to spend 19 billion dollars on that. These numbers have become so big that they're not real anymore. They're just well, <laughs> they're they hard are. to hard to really wrap your head around how much money 19 billion dollars is. But then you're right for that, but then you think about that and that's a large sum of money. The Quarter four profits for 2023 for Meta, the parent company, was $14 billion. So what they blew on WhatsApp, they got back in profit a bit over a quarter. So we think $19 billion is a big number. $14 billion in profit is a big number. Yeah. Now, they've had a few scandals along the way, of course. The Cambridge Analytica scandal was probably the biggest mm-hmm. one. They've had some fines along the way. The biggest fine that I can think of is the 1.2 billion euro fine. But again, mm. if someone fined me 1.2 billion euros, I'd be thinking that's going to hurt a bit. But for Meta, oh, you know, maybe that's a couple yeah. of weeks and yeah, we'll right. pay off that fine. We'll that, okay. And I, I do hear organisations sometimes in whatever they might do who say, well, we'll take the risk on that. If we get a fine, that's better than making ourselves compliant. Now, I'm not suggesting that Meta or Facebook do that, but when you see fines like that, that you think are significant fines, and it's a couple of weeks' worth of profit, you just go, well, really? Did it really have any impact on their behaviour? It's going to be used a lot more for a whole range of things, but obviously things like political influence, Mm. $40 million Donald Trump spent on the 2020 US election. Now, he didn't win that election. Maybe he needed to spend $60 million, who knows? But he went incredibly close for someone that I think was not very well received as a president to still come so close, you might say, well, $40 million probably bought you a much closer election than ever you would have got in the past. Mm. Where are they going now? Well, I remember 10 years ago, people saying that Facebook is gone. It had its time in the sunshine. It got to a billion users, but it's an old person's social media now. (laughs) Those young people have moved on to something else, but they've been pretty good in stealing features from rivals. So they've got, Snapchat's got its story, so they've tried to do something similar to that. TikTok's got its short videos. So they've tried to imitate some of these things that other social media platforms have used, and Facebook's still there. It's still being used. In fact, when you put together Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook, there's over 3 billion daily users of meta technology. Now, that's a lot. Goodness me. You can do a lot with that influence. You can change algorithms. You can have, you, you could win the US election if you wanted to do that. You could say, we'll make sure that these type of videos, this content is favoured over this content, which could favour one candidate over, mm. over the other. You've got a lot of influence. You've got more influence than any political person. There's a big statement I'm going to make here. More influence than any individual political person in the world if you've got control of Meta. And that's pretty significant, isn't it? Because you've got three billion users you're influencing every single day. Now, you'd hope the content does the influencing, but of course you've got algorithms that are driving all this. You don't have to see what happens in advertising on social media to know that there's an incredible amount of influence that you can have. So the future, metaverse, AI, who knows? We live in interesting times. But in the next 20 years, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more changes there. Here's some good news for EV fans. The fast charge is set for an upgrade with a new breed of battery in development to decrease charge times even further. Matt, developments in energy tech is a very interesting space to watch these days. Now, I'm going to declare there is no such thing as range anxiety. Now, there is such a thing. 
but whether or not that needs to be such a thing. No, I'm going to declare that there's no such thing. Right. I'm going to declare that range anxiety is actually mislabeled. It's really charge anxiety. Okay. Because when you think about range anxiety, what people are talking about is, oh, I'm not sure if I can drive that 1,000 kilometres. Well, you get in your petrol car, you can't drive 1,000 kilometres. Mm. But what you can do in your petrol car is you can drive for 500 and then you can stop and fill up with petrol in a couple of minutes mm. and then continue on. Mm. Whereas in an EV... You can drive that 500 kilometres, but then stop, but it takes you more than a few minutes to charge up. So it's not really range anxiety, it's really charge Char- anxiety. Okay, I'll give you that. All righty. All righty, yes, we've had a victory. <laughs> <laughs> and part of that charge anxiety is how many charges there are, but even that one's an interesting one because there are more charges, multiply more charges, than there are petrol stations because every power point's a charger. Yeah. But again, how long does it take to charge up? That's the problem. What some researchers or engineers at Cornell University have developed is a new lithium battery that you could charge up, a car that you could charge in under five minutes. So now we're starting to get away from charging. What, going from, what, 20% to 100%? Yeah, They haven't actually given full details. They've just said charge up in under five minutes. So whether it's zero to 100 or whether it's 20 to 80, but basically what you'd normally do with a charger and wait, for longer than five minutes, you could do in five minutes. Yeah, because one of the problems with charging is when it gets to that 80% mark, it gets a little bit harder to pack those lithium ions. So it slows down a bit there. So it'll be interesting to see with new battery technology whether or not that's still a problem. Anyway, sorry. I'd but even if you even if you got to 80% quickly, that would yeah. still be okay because yeah. most of the time you can continue on your journey. They're using indium for its anode, and so that allows it to be much faster to charge. The minor problem is that it's heavier, but... If it's faster to charge, you could probably get away with a smaller capacity battery because mm. you're happier to charge up on a more regular basis. And what they haven't addressed in this particular article talking about the way they charge batteries is the power you need to be able to charge that. So I said that every power point is a charger. That's right. But even if you had a faster charging battery, you've only got so much current, so much power, mm. so many kilowatt hours you can get out of a power point at any one time, most power points are rated at 10 amps, some are rated at 15 amps, but at 10 amps, that's only 2.4 or 2,400 watts, 2.4 kilowatts that you're able to get out of that. So presumably, the maximum you're going to be able to put back into a battery is 2.4 kilowatt hours in an hour. So you're mm. still having that slower charge time. I don't see that they're changing the physics of that. What this is really focused on is having a way if you've got the capacity in the charger, to pull all that charge into the battery much faster. So instead of then having gotcha. superchargers that are 250 kilowatt or 50 kilowatt, why not have a supercharger that's 1,000 kilowatts or 2,000 kilowatts? Because the battery can handle it at the moment. There wouldn't be much point having that because most cars have got maybe 150, maybe 250 kilowatts is the maximum capacity of that charge that you can put into it. Yeah, gotcha. And that limitation is the battery, typically. So the, the charge anxiety that people feel could be addressed by this and a combination with different charges. But there's no point building different charges at the moment because the batteries can't handle it. Hmm. We're getting there, slowly. We're getting there. That's so interesting. E-readers like Kindle were something of a phenomenon when they came out a decade and a half ago, but many avid readers will confess that they're just not willing to surrender the feel and the smell of the paper all those sensations that go along with immersing yourself in a good book. Well, reading at night is a problem, though, disturbing partners who are trying to sleep. For the diehards, though, there is a new neck lamp to direct the light onto the page only, and just maybe perhaps 
Save a marriage or two, Matt. <laughs> I must admit that I would recommend using these in the bedroom, in a private setting. I probably think of these a bit like sweatpants. Good around the house, but not to be seen in public. Because when I looked <laughs> at the pictures of these, I thought, if ever you want to put a label on yourself that says, I'm a nerdy geek, wearing a neck lamp neck is lamp. the way to do that. <laughs> but I do so like the idea. So long flights, probably not. Well, I reckon you can get away with a lot on a plane because people are looking at their worst on a plane. So yeah. I reckon you could just You're wait allowed. a little while, look around. Some people are starting to just have a bit of a snooze and pull out your neck lamp and sit it on and, and read. And of course, <laughs> I always feel guilty if ever I'm doing a bit of work and there's some paper, unfortunately, with my computer that I'm working on and I turn the light on above me, I feel like it's a bit, glary and it's probably going and throwing a lot of light around areas you don't want it so it's not that targeted so a nickname would be perfect on a flight so well, you're not annoying other people got to be it's tradies who work in dark confined spaces too they, they might have a use for it as well well i was only up in my ceiling last night doing some work just running some extra cabling because i like to do that sort of thing at night why not and i wear a hat with lights built into the peak of the uh -huh. hat yeah. i like to get the spiders out of my hair but also see where i'm going <laughs> but you're right for something like that that would be absolutely perfect to have the neck lamp on. The idea here, it's a, a bit practical. We like to look at visionary things on TikTok, but I just saw this. I'm like, this is a great idea because there are some people who do love the good old-fashioned paper. Some people mm -hmm. still buy the newspaper because they love the good old-fashioned paper. But it is hard at night. It is hard in some settings. And, of course, if you're a bit like me, getting a few years under your belt and you get presbyopia – where things are a bit harder to read in darkness, you want you, know, you go outside, you can read that article easily. You go indoors, oh, it's a bit yeah. hard to read that. Then having that light directly on there is a great idea. The LED, it's actually light, it's comfortable. You've got battery life that's good because they are LEDs and it's bright. Sure, the e-readers are great, but for those people who want a bit of paper, then I would recommend the neck lamp. Well, I've been known to fall asleep while I'm reading a book too, so <laughs> I can imagine rolling over a couple of times and strangling myself. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe sitting up in bed then so maybe it falls off. I wonder and you if they come with asleep. a disclaimer. Um, <laughs> it probably does. Yeah, a waiver. <laughs> well, I saw, I had to buy a bracket to hang up a TV the other day, and the bracket it was in a package that was probably, say, 40 centimetres by 30 centimetres, so a fairly small bracket. And on the back, it said, does not include TV. And I went to make <laughs> a complaint to the person at the, at the store. I said, look, I'm really concerned about this. This 40 by 30 centimetre package doesn't include an 85-inch TV. What's going on here? And he looked at me as if to think, this guy is very strange and realised I was joking. But the warnings that you see on things are quite incredible. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I was hoping to get home and open this package and bang, out pops this 85-inch TV. Inflatable <laughs> TV, maybe. Mm. Add water and see what happens. So anyway, the neck lamp, a very practical suggestion from us on Tech Talk. And today. Mother's Day's coming up too, not too far away. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> And that's all we have time for today, folks. You've procrastinated for long enough and it's time for you to get busy ticking off those jobs that you've been avoiding. Not a bad way to procrastinate, though, if I do say so myself. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. Now, what's the old tool that the seafaring captains used to use to work out where they were? The sextant. That sounds good. Sexton, yes. That sounds yes. good. Right. I'm going outside to get my sexton just to see exactly where I'm on the planet because I can't trust my phone anymore. Fair enough. It would have worked better if I knew the term sexton straight away, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I enjoyed uh, the bit of a different flavour today, shifting backwards and forwards in time. Some solid juxtapositioning there. 
Yeah, always. <laughs> Retrospectives are always so interesting. I'm a big fan. It's also interesting to reframe your mind back to a time and a place where something was brand new and uncertain. Anyway, thanks for indulging me today, Matt, and uh, it's been a super show. Always my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson is completely homegrown from the red earth soil and the tertiary basalts of the central western New South Wales. Uh, enriching, oh, well, we enrich it with sweet, cool water from the Macquarie River. I'm James Eddy, and I hope that we can catch you in one week's time for another ripe episode, freshly picked from the vine. It's a bountiful harvest, too, so bring your friends along too. See you then.